Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And so I want to welcome everyone who's worshiping, those that are worshiping here in our celebration service, uh, over in our summit service. I was able to spend a few moments with, with them, with you this morning, and of course, all of those that are worshiping from home. And we hope that you were warm and uh, not thirsty, right? As this has been a pretty rough week here in Nacogdoches. Well, we're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in a moment in verse 14. We're focused on these seven letters to the seven churches, and today we come to the seventh church, the church at Laodicea. But before we get into the scripture passage, which we will read this morning, I I want to give you the message in a nutshell. Many people, too many people, are casual about their Christian faith. Do you know that? So many people today... They, they call themselves Christians, they, they may very well be children of God, but they are casual about what it means to follow Christ. They are casual about their Christian faith. Some people will say, well, we may go to church this week or we may not go to church this week. We may worship with our faith family or we may not worship with our faith family. Some people will say, I just have different priorities, pastor, for this season of my life in church and my faith. That's not a part of my priority. Some people will say that consistency for me right now is just not convenient. And even in the last few days, even in the last week or two, I have heard people say out loud about how they are proud, if you will, of how casual they are about their Christian commitments, how casual they are about worshiping God and their faith. It's made me want to shout a few times and say, if what we're doing here is not that important, then let's not do it anymore. We have too many people today casual about our Christian faith And that's what we're going to see in a moment is the focus of this letter to Laodicea beginning in Revelation 3, 14. You know, attendance in many churches today, churches in towns like ours and churches like ours, many of those churches in the last five years have seen their attendance just dwindle down. And for many churches today, uh, in the last five years, they've lost, even before COVID hit, they've lost about 40% of their attendance. Good churches that preach the gospel, churches where they love Jesus and have a great history, the attendance is just down, down, down. Now, that's not true at our church, but I think the things that are happening in the churches where it is true, those same things are happening in our church. And so researchers have looked at this problem, and what they've discovered is that these churches that have that have gone down 40% in attendance are not any smaller now than they were before the drop. The issue is not that 40% of the people have left. The issue is that people are attending church 40% less often. People who were very active in church and who attended 50 times a year five years ago, they typically attend 30 times a year now. And people who attended three times a month are now attending one time a month. We have just gotten to the place where we are casual about our Christian 
faith. And this can be measured in way more ways than just our attendance. We're casual about service. We're casual about serving the Lord and being committed to serving the Lord. We want to know that, uh, that, that we'll do something, Pastor, as long as it's convenient or as long as it fulfills us in some way. We're casual about service. We're casual about prayer. We're casual about personal Bible study. We're casual about sharing the gospel. We're casual about obedient living. And I'm afraid that we have created a faith, and this is largely an American phenomenon, but we have created and developed a faith that sidelines some of the clearest passages that we read in the New Testament. Let me just share some of these with you. 1 Peter 2.11 says that we are to live as strangers and aliens in this world. Meaning that our lifestyle, our commitment to our faith should be such that our lives are markedly different than the lives of those people who are not followers of Christ. But that's largely not true of us. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Yet we look for the easiest path in our faith. 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks only to please his commanding officer. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Does it sound like the apostle Paul compromised or had a casual faith? Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus said, if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. You think, Pastor, that's not a passage we preach on anymore, but it's there. We should preach on it. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. C.S. Lewis, do you know that name? A couple of generations ago, one of the clearest spokespeople for Christianity because he just had a way of understanding the Bible and putting it in, this, in, in, in these very pithy words that, that made sense to people and helped people understand. Here's what he said. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Christianity, if it's not true, then it, it is of no importance. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If it is true, it is of infinite importance, right? If it's false, then it doesn't matter at all. If it's true, then it really matters. But he says, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And think about it, he's right. Christianity can never be just, just moderately important. Either we believe it and it is the most important thing, or we don't believe it and it is the least important thing. There's no way logically it can be in the middle. Yet for so many people today, their faith is moderately important. Do you know the names Penn and Teller? If you're over 30, you know who those are. Uh, a couple of illusionists. Uh, they have a, uh, they're entertainers. I think they became famous for a show that uh, they did and maybe still do in Las Vegas, where I, I think it's sort of half comedy show and half magic show. 
Uh, and, I, and I've not seen the show in Vegas, but I have seen him on television a few times. Uh, Penn, he's the big guy, the loud mouth. He does all of the talking. And Teller, he doesn't say anything. And they've got this little, you know, sort of their styles, what they do. And they're pretty famous for this. Now, Penn, his name is Penn Gillette. He is, or at least was, an atheist. Uh, I've, I've read somewhere that that may have changed recently. I, I don't know if that is true or not. But uh, he was an atheist, and he was proud of his atheist uh, viewpoint in life. He was proud of the fact that he did not believe in God. And so when people asked him, why don't you believe in God? Why will you not accept the faith in Jesus Christ? And he said, the reason I could never, one of the reasons I could never accept Christianity is because I've met too many Christians who are casual about their faith. He says, there's no way those Christians really believe what they say they believe. Because if they believed it, if they really believed that there was a God in heaven, if they really believed that, that everybody lives forever somewhere, if they really believed that there was a heaven and that there was a hell, they wouldn't act like they're acting. They wouldn't be embarrassed about their faith. They wouldn't be worried about sharing their faith with somebody that, that they might be seen as socially awkward, if they really believe this, they would act entirely different. And so on the basis of how casual the typical Christian in America is about his faith, Teller said, Penn rather, said that there's no way I could ever, I could ever be a Christian. That takes me right back to what C.S. Lewis says, if Christianity is false, then it is unimportant. If it is true, it is, it is of the highest importance. It can only never be moderately important. Well, that's what Jesus says. And of course, what Jesus said, way more important than what C.S. Lewis says or what, uh, what Penn and Teller might say. Let's see how Jesus says it. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Bible says, write to the angel, to the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. So this is a letter. Uh, we've been going through this series. If you've been here, you know seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today. This is the last of those churches. It's in the city of Laodicea. Now, the church here, interestingly enough, in Laodicea was founded uh, by Epaphras, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul, who was in Ephesus. Ephesus, and I didn't look this up, but it would be west, probably about 70 or 80 miles west of Laodicea. And so now there's a church here. There are four things that everybody in the first century would have known about Laodicea that, that are important that you know, that I know, as, as we read the rest of this letter. So let me tell you a little bit about the city. First of all, it was known as a center for banking. Uh, there was a lot of wealth in Laodicea. In fact, some of the oldest coins that we have today are coins minted in Laodicea so many years ago. Secondly, it is famous, it was famous for its farming and manufacture of this soft, dark wool. And so they, uh, through their special farming techniques, they were able to, uh, to grow these sheep that had this uh, very soft wool and they were able to process it in such a way. They were famous uh, for this wool. And then number three, they were known for their expertise in medicine. 
they, they produced a number of salves, most famous a salve for the eye and salve for the ears, the salve for the eye made out of Phrygia powder. Uh, they, they claimed, and it was, uh, it, it was something that was believed in those days, that it would make your eyesight clearer, especially in old age. And so they were famous, famous for that. And then number four, they were famous for their poor water quality. And so it's interesting that about five miles, six miles north of uh, Laodicea, there was a small city famous for its water. And then about five or six miles south of Laodicea, there was a city famous for its water. Uh, if, if I don't have the north and south mixed up, it was the city in the north that was famous for its mineral water. It was hot water. People would go and they would bathe in these hot mineral springs. It was a therapeutic water. Now, the water in the city just south of Laodicea was a cold, refreshing water that came from a spring in the ground. In fact, it's still there and still producing that, that quality, refreshing water today. And so they're sort of uh, sandwiched in by these two very valuable sources of water. But by the time the water got to Laodicea through these above ground aqueducts, which uh, by the way, archeologists have dug some of these up, they're still there. By the time they would get the hot mineral water to uh, Laodicea, and by the time they would get this cold, refreshing water uh, f- uh, to the city of Laodicea, the water was lukewarm, it was dirty, contaminated, and putrid. And so they were known for their terrible water. Now, with that being said, let's continue to read. Verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15. He says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So this is an allusion to the, to the lukewarm water there. And, and I think this is a verse that has been misinterpreted for, uh, for, for so many years. I, I know back when I was uh, a youth minister, this often was a youth ministry sermon verse, and I think I probably mishandled it a few times. Uh, traditionally, we, we have said that the hot water represents somebody who is on fire for Christ. And the cold water represents somebody that rejects Christ. And then Jesus is talking about people who are right in the middle. But, but I don't think that's really how this is presented here. The hot water speaks of this hot mineral water from the city just north of them. And it was a therapeutic water. It was a good water. And the cold water represents this refreshing water from the city south of them. And it too was a good water. There was good water up north. There was good water down south. But by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was not good water. There was nothing, listen, at Laodicea, there was nothing good about their faith. It wasn't the therapeutic faith of the city up north. It was not the refreshing water faith of the city down south. There was nothing good about it there in Laodicea. Now, continuing on, verse 16, he says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, that's pretty harsh, right? Vomit you out of my mouth. Some Bibles will clean this up a little bit, and they'll say, Uh, You make me sick or you uh, 
make me want to spew you out of my mouth. And those are not incorrect ways to see this. But, but I think it's interesting to note that Jesus, and this is a letter from Jesus, Jesus Christ, Mike and, meek and mild Jesus Christ. And he says in the strongest words, he could have chosen different words had he, had he wanted to. In the strongest words, Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, what's interesting about this is to look at the words of Jesus throughout the New Testament. This is not the only time that Jesus uses harsh words, right? Jesus is meek and mild and Jesus is loving, but Jesus from time to time uses some very harsh words. He called people a brood of vipers. He, he, he questioned people's integrity. He, he turned over the tables of the money changers. Jesus had some harsh words, but who did Jesus always reserve his harshest words for? It was always for these religious hypocrites. It was always for these people who pretended to follow God, but were so filled with, with pride and arrogance. I think about the people who accused the woman of, of adultery. I, I, I think about the, the, the man who, who beat, his, beat his chest and, was, and, and was, was praying in front of others and, and proud of the life that he lived. Jesus always reserved his harshest words for the religious hypocrites that he encountered. And, and that's the same same thing we see right, right here. Now, if we look at verses 17 and 18, uh, we see uh, you know, some of the specifics here of what was, problem, what was the problem there in Laodicea. Verse 17 says, for you say, I'm rich and I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now you see there a connection uh, between that verse and what we know now of the city. Uh, you say that you need nothing. That, that really goes back to something that happened about 60, 65 years before they would have received this letter. Uh, there was a terrible earthquake in Laodicea and, and across Asia Minor, and it destroyed a lot of the cities. Laodicea was one of those cities uh, almost completely destroyed by this earthquake. And so the Roman government issued a you know, a disaster declaration, sort of like they do today, like has been done for Texas now. And so then money would flow from Rome to help rebuild these different cities. Well, 60, 65 years before uh, they received this letter, when this earthquake hit, Laodicea refused the money. They told Rome, we don't need your help. We'll rebuild our own city. You sort of like that, right? I mean, so that's sort of an impressive, impressive thing. But that attitude had filtered all the way down into their spiritual lives. And so it says here, look at it again in verse 17. For you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy, and I need nothing. They believed that both materially, financially, but they also believed that spiritually. He says again, and you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, you're, you're poor because you don't have Christ. You're poor because you don't have forgiveness for your sins. You're blind because you don't see the truth. And then he explains this further in verse 18. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So get the true wealth from me, which is the forgiveness of sins, so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. So, so again, he's talking about forgiveness. You, you think you're well clothed because of this uh, fancy wool that uh, has been produced, but, but no, you need to get from me a true covering for your sin. And then 
ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. He says, you don't even see the truth. You think you can see well, but spiritually you cannot. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous. That's the opposite of being casual, right? Be zealous and repent, make a change. And then verse 20, and if you know this uh, passage of scripture, this is the verse everybody's been waiting on, right? This is the focus verse of this passage. Verse 20, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, two things we need to see before we just uh, forge on here. First is the question, who is Jesus talking to? And, and there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of pages written about this. Is Jesus talking to a church? Well, he is talking to a church. It's a letter to a church. It says to the angel of the church at Laodicea, to the pastor of the church at Laodicea, to be read to the church. But is he talking about an organization? When he, when he makes these accusations, is he talking about some deficiency in the organized church at Laodicea? Or is he talking to individuals? Is he talking to maybe Christians who were members of that church but had somehow strayed from the Lord, had strayed away from their faith? Is he talking to those people? Or is he talking to lost people, unbelievers that somehow had become members of the church, but they were just nominal Christians, just Christians in name. They weren't genuine Christians. And perhaps Jesus is addressing lost people when he says this. And, and really, uh, th- there's evidence for all three. And Jesus, it, had, he, had he wanted to be more specific, he could easily have done so. I believe he's talking about all three. This certainly was a church that he was addressing. And, uh, and, and he has counsel for the church, just as he did for the other six churches in this passage. Uh, he, he's talking, I believe, to Christians, to, to people in that church, because a church by itself can't really respond and repent. Individuals have to respond and repent. And certainly there were Christians in that church that needed to respond, Christians that needed to make a change. And so I believe he was talking to Christians. I also believe he's talking to lost people. In fact, this is where most of the scholarship comes down. He was talking to people who, while they may have been members of the church, they had never truly followed Christ. They had never been adopted into the family of God, and they were unbelievers. In fact, one of the commentaries I was reading this week is uh, by John MacArthur, and I thought I would quote that one because I hear many of you uh, quote him, and he's a, he's a person that I know is well-respected in our church. And here's what he said. The verses indicate that Christ was speaking here to unbelievers. And so this admonition, this invitation, if you will, knocking on the door, he's knocking on the door of the church. He's knocking on the door of the hearts of, of saved people who have strayed and he's knocking on the hearts of unbelievers. Now, this is a beautiful picture. If you just focus on verse 20, it's a beautiful picture. In fact, you may have actually seen the picture. There's a very famous painting, William Hull, William Hunt, I'm not sure, but uh, 19th century where, uh, and everybody's seen this, Jesus with a candle and a lantern and knocking on a door. Uh, If we think about this and just try to imagine what verse 20 would have looked like in the minds and hearts of the people who who heard this read at the church of Laodicea, it's it's a beautiful picture. And let me tell you why it's so, it's so beautiful. First of all, we see here that Jesus is taking the initiative, right? 
Jesus is knocking on the door of the church or the, or the person saved or lost. Jesus is taking the initiative. You don't have to go hunt Jesus down. Jesus will hunt you down. That's what's one of the most beautiful things about the gospel is that Jesus loved us, God loved us, even while we were still sinners. This isn't us reaching out and discovering God. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I'm on a search for God. Well, if you search, you'll never find him. But if you'll stand still, God will find you. He'll knock on your door. That's the first beautiful thing I see here. Secondly, I think this is beautiful because it tells us that Jesus persists in the knocking. And this is one of those things that you can't really see in English. And I'm, I'm not an expert on the biblical languages and try not to talk about all of them because I could just see people's eyes roll back in their heads. But, but there's one thing here that's important to know. This verb knock is, is a durative tense. It, it is a present active uh, indicative. And, and, and what it's saying is that he knocked and continued to knock. It wasn't just one knock or two knocks. It was a continual knocking on the door. Jesus is persistent. That's how much he loves us and desires fellowship. The next thing I see that's beautiful here is that Jesus leaves the choice to the individual. One of the gifts that God has given to us is the ability to choose. There's nothing irresistible here. It's a conditional sentence. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and if you open the door. And then I see here, and this is the most beautiful part, well, another beautiful part. Uh, there's a desire on the part of Jesus to fellowship with us. I mean, it could it, the analogy could have been different than this. It could have said that Jesus knocks on the door so that when we open the door, he'll give us a gift or he'll give us a certificate or he'll sign us up or he'll guarantee us something. But that's not what it says. What does it say will happen when you open the door? Jesus will come in and he will dine with you and you will dine with him. It says it both directions. It uses way more words than it has to here. What is it, what is it communicating? That Jesus wants to be a part of our lives. You know, there's a difference in just but between just knowing somebody and having somebody come and be a part of your, of your dinner table, right? If you have a dinner table friend, that's different than just having an acquaintance. Jesus doesn't say, I just want to give you a gift. He doesn't just say, I want to forgive you. He doesn't just say, I want to, I want to give you a, a ticket out of hell. He says, no, I want to come and I want to dine with you. And I want you to dine with me. I want us to have, I want us to have this, this fellowship and that. Uh, friends, is, is a beautiful picture, beautiful picture. Now, when Jesus wrote this, it was, it was written in a way that when this letter was read to the church, to the people in the church of Laodicea, that this verse, verse 20, would just, it would have just rung in their hearts. It, it would have just, it would have startled them a little bit, like ringing a loud bell. It would have, it would have sh shook them up. It would have it would wake them up. And, and it's really written to do the same thing for us. And so I don't know if you've ever been in a quiet room and the door's closed and maybe you're just spending some, you know, some quiet time. You don't think anybody else is around. Nobody's going to bother you. And, and then just in the midst of your solitude, all of a sudden you hear us. You just hear this big loud knock at the door and it startles you. And oh no, somebody's here. And that, this is supposed to feel that way. Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking and it'll startle us. And I'll just ask, well, really, where is Jesus? Where's the table? Where's the door? And where are we? And how do these things fit together? So 
let me take this verse and, and let's answer those questions. Let's start by talking about the church. What would it mean if Jesus were outside a church and knocking on the door? What would that even look like? And then we're going to talk about the believer. If Jesus were on the outside of a believer's life, knocking on the door, what would that look like? And then we'll talk about uh, someone who's not a child, child of God. But let's start with the church. What we see here, at least in part, is that Jesus was on the outside of the church at Laodicea. Now, this is a church, right? It's not a synagogue. It's not a mosque. It's not, it's a church. But Jesus, the Bible says, was on the outside of the church. What could that mean? What could that mean? Well, I think we see a little bit of that by just looking at the details of the church at Laodicea. So two things I want you to notice. First of all, it was a church, as I said. And so if it's a church, it would have had a membership role. Uh, there's uh, clear evidence in the Bible that the first church kept membership roles. And so it would have had a role, just like we have a role. It would have... Uh, it likely had a building, might not have in churches in this period. Some did, some didn't, but most did. So it probably had a role. It had a building. It would definitely have had a schedule. It would have had ministries. It would have had weekly worship. This was a church. It looked like a church, right? I don't know if they had a web page. I don't know if they had social media, but it was a church just like we're a church today. The second thing I want you to notice about Laodicea is that apparently it was a church with good preaching because in some of the other churches that Jesus has addressed here in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus specifically says that there's a problem with their teaching, with their doctrine, with what they believe. And he talks about the heresy that's in some of these churches. But when he gets to the church at Laodicea, he doesn't pull any punches. He has some very difficult things to say to this church, but he doesn't accuse them of having any kind of theological problem. Apparently their doctrine, what they believed was right on. It was the true doctrine. So I want you to see this. A church can have all the right activities. They can have men's ministry and women's ministry and children's ministry, youth ministry and college ministry and missions ministry and choir ministry and bell ministry and door ministry. And they can have all the right ministries and a church can have all the right doctrine. They could be believing the truth and preaching the truth and they can still be a church where Jesus is on the outside and not the inside. So what makes it true that Jesus is on the inside? Well, what I believe is the case here and what I believe is the case in many churches is, is this, that if a church does all of the programs right and if a church gets all of the doctrine right, but if a church is not a gospel-focused lighthouse, Jesus sending the message to people who don't know uh, the, the gospel, if a church is not focused on the gospel, a church is a church with Jesus on the outside. Does that make sense? There are so many things that we can do without Jesus. We can have a really good program without Jesus. We can teach some really good truth without Jesus. What does it mean to have Jesus inside? It means that we're a lighthouse for the gospel. A lighthouse for the gospel. You know, this week, many of you lost power. And some of you still don't have power. I've I, I'm, I'm glad you're here this morning. If you came without power, God bless you. Uh, there will be a special place in heaven uh, for, for you. 
But you know, this week, if uh, I, I did not lose power, but I did in the previous storm uh, a few weeks ago for a day or so. Uh, it, it, there, I, I talked to a lot of you this week that didn't have power, and it's frustrating, right? So you've got all of the, you got all the stuff, right? You've got light switches in your house, and you flip them up and down. They seem to, to work, at least mechanically. You've got electric lights in your house. You have an electric furnace that was in great working order. You have electric water heaters. You have electric appliances. You've got all the stuff, but you just don't have the electricity, right? And so it, it can be frustrating because all the electrical stuff in the world is, is useless without the electricity. And there are a lot of churches that have all the stuff right? They have the buildings and the ministers and, and they have the programs and they have the teaching and they have the books and they, they have all the stuff, but they don't have Jesus. They don't have Jesus. They don't have a focus on the gospel, caring about people who are lost like Jesus cared about people who were lost. And they are churches with Jesus on the outside. Church at Laodicea prided itself on its gold, uh, which would stand for our stability or our history. They prided themselves on their clothes, which would stand for our reputation. They prided themselves on eyesight, which would stand for doctrinal integrity. But if a church does those things and ignores those who are lost in its community, then a church is without Christ. When a church measures, listen, when a church measures the presence of God by how much money it has, by how much how many people attend or by its doctrine instead of by souls saved, then it's likely a church with Jesus on the outside. If our ministries are about stroking our members and making us feel good about ourselves and patting each other on the back and we're not about sharing the gospel, then we're a church with Jesus on the outside. When we invite Jesus into our ministries, Jesus, who is the source of light, will turn those ministries into lighthouses, and they will be gospel ministries. And so as a church, as your pastor, I'm asking you, as a church, starting with me and every single one of us, let us open the door and make sure that Jesus is in the church that Jesus is in every ministry, that Jesus is in every sermon, that Jesus is in every prayer and every song. Let's don't be a church with Jesus on the outside. Now, there's not just a question about the church here, though. There's a question about the believer. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about this uh, because I, I really believe I can just get the ball rolling here and the Holy Spirit will... will uh, will bring conviction where it's needed. But I want to ask the question to get you thinking. As a believer, as a child of God, is Jesus on the outside or the inside? You know, there are a lot of ways that Jesus can get on the outside. He can get on the outside by disobedience. He can get on the outside because we just disregard him for a season. He can get on the outside because we just drift away. And I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm just talking practically, is Jesus at the table? Is, is there a fellowship? Is he dining with you and you're dining with him? Or is Jesus on the outside knocking on the door? And so I think the best way to help you answer this question is just to read, just to read some scripture as, as salve and let the Holy Spirit rub it in. Let me read three verses. 
1 Kings 18, 21, then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. How long will we waver? How long will we, will we wait? Hosea 10, 12, break up your unplowed ground. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and sends righteousness on you like the rain. And then finally, James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Is Jesus on the outside, Christian? Or is Jesus sitting at the table? Sitting at the table. Now, quickly, let me talk about the third one. A question for the lost man. I think for, for many people, Jesus has always been on the outside. And maybe you have looked at him through the window or spoken to him through the door, but he's still on the outside. Uh, he's not come in to the, to the table. He's not dined with you and you dined with him. You may know something about him. You may even believe some things about him. But you can't say he's a part of your life. Jesus knocks on the door, knocks on the door. You know, when somebody comes to my door, we have a peephole. Do you have a peephole in your door? And so the reason you, you have a peephole or a window is you want to see if the person knocking on the door is trustworthy. There's some people, some of you, I just wouldn't let you in, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'd let you in. I might go out the back door, but you're, you're welcome. Now, you, you look through the window because you want to see if the person is trustworthy. Not just if you know who they are. I know some people I don't want to come in my house. But you look to see if they're trustworthy. Jesus is knocking on the door. And some people, they know of him. They know about him but they've never decided that he's trustworthy, that they could trust him with their life, with their forgiveness, with their, with their salvation, with their career, with their marriage, with their conduct, with their attitude. And you've kept them on the outside. As I told you a moment ago, this is a beautiful picture. Maybe primarily... If, if you don't know Christ as your savior, it's a beautiful picture because Christ is coming to you. This isn't a journey you go on and, 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 and the discovery that you, have to, that you have to engage in. This isn't a treasure hunt. Jesus is knocking on your door and maybe he has brought you here this morning for this reason, if, if for, for no other reason that you might hear that Jesus is knocking on your door and he waits for you to open. And he wants to come in and he wants to dine with you and you to dine with him. He wants to be a part of your life and you to be a part of his life. He has paid the penalty for your sins already. That is done so that, so that you can receive forgiveness as soon as you trust in him. He knocks on the door. He knocks on the door. We, when we think about this letter to the church at Laodicea, you know, the, the, the message is clear. Jesus is knocking on the door. It's just, it's just really, is he knocking on the door of our church? Is that, is that the primary message for you, for me this morning? Is he knocking on the door of your heart as a, as a believer? Is he knocking on the door of your heart as, a, as an unbeliever? But the, but the decision is, e either way, are we going to open the door and invite him to come in and dine with us and us to dine with him? And so in a moment, we'll have a, 
an invitation time. We'll, we're going to sing, we're, or um, uh, there'll be music in, in the services, different in each service. But when, when that time occurs, here's my challenge. Let's open the door. And that may mean something different, uh, Tom, for you than it does for me. Uh, but let's me and you open the door. It may mean something different for you than it does for your husband or wife. But let's you open the door. Let's open the door. Now, I love, I, I love how Scripture just comes together. And, and, and you see the hand of God in this. So let me just show you one more thing. So here when Jesus is choosing the words, he's choosing a, a symbol, a picture, a metaphor to describe what it's like to live with Jesus. What, is he, what, what picture does he draw? A sitting down and having a meal with him. That's the picture. That's what you see right here. Revelation 3.20. I'll come in and, and we will have a meal together. That's Jesus' picture. Can you think of another time in scripture where Jesus talks about us coming together as having a meal together? Well, there is. It's called the Lord's Supper. And Jesus did this with his disciples the night before he died. And he said, I want to celebrate that we are one. And I want to look forward to the day tomorrow for him that I will die for the sins of the world. My body will be given. My blood will be shed for the sins of the world. And he said then, I want you until I return to celebrate this meal and when you celebrate it, I want you to celebrate that, that we are together. It's a meal. He could have chosen a thousand other illustrations. He says, I want you to think we're celebrating this meal. And I want the bread to remind you that I lived a sinless life, never sinned, and I lived a sinless life for you. And I want the cup to remind us that I died and shed my blood, not to pay for my sins, but to pay for yours so that we could be together forever. And he chose that meal, whether you're looking in the Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, it's the meal. Whether you're looking in 1 Corinthians, it's the meal. Whether you're looking in Revelation, it's the meal. He's chosen this as our celebration. And so we're gonna celebrate with this uh, right now. So let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray, and then there will be some music in both services, and then we're going to take together the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you, through Christ, desire to dine with us and us with you. Let us celebrate that, first of all, by opening the door, and then by celebrating through the Lord's Supper. May you be honored in our church and in our lives and in this service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just heads bowed, eyes closed as we sing.